pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to my podcast number 458, Receptive Language Milestones by 36 Months, brought to you by my website, Teach Me to Talk, where we're the largest provider of ASHA-approved CEUs for early intervention. If you haven't already subscribed to our YouTube channel, please do. We so appreciate all that support. Now, if this is your first time joining me for a course, thank you so much for being here. We want to be your main provider for CEU courses. All our courses focus solely on preschoolers and toddlers, so if that's what you do, welcome. We want to have you stick around for lots more courses. You can purchase our courses online where and when you need them with no annual subscriptions and no auto renews. You can buy all of our courses a la carte in our $5 CEU program. Now, if this is not your first course, welcome back. It is always such a privilege to have all of you join me for this next course to talk about early language development. So let's get going. Today, we're continuing our Language Milestones podcast series. Now, this is actually show number nine in a 14-part series where we review all the developmental language skills, both receptive skills and expressive skills from about 12 months all the way up to 48 months. So here we are at 36 months, so right at three years old. Now we're tackling each of the milestone ranges in six month increments. One show for receptive and one show for expressive. And again, we are all the way up to the receptive language show for 36 months. For therapists, because this is a continuing education course, you can purchase that credit here below by looking uh, in the in the post below here on YouTube. And if you're listening on your podcast app, you can go to my website at Teach Me to Talk, and this is show number 458. Now you will get your CE credit with a certificate plus a handout. So that that would be the show uh, notes from today's course. Now the handout's a great tool to use for parent education. I like to use it at the beginning of a session when I'm introducing a strategy, as well as at the end of a session when we're wrapping up. And certainly I always like giving parents something that they can take home uh, for additional reading. That's why we've started also about a year ago to begin to offer the handouts available for purchase for parents and grandparents as well. Now, so many parents and grandparents write and say, how can we support your work here, especially uh, your YouTube channel? So we've added an option that you can purchase the handout for the show today uh, for $5 or any other amount that you would like to give. So look for that link below. It will be here in uh, the description here on YouTube. And again, you're looking at show 458. All right, it, uh, let's go ahead and begin by reviewing the milestones uh, for today's show. And so I hope that you'll follow along with me there on your handout. And the skills are listed right here in the right-hand column. So the first two skills are related to something that we talked about in previous shows, and that's following directions or following commands. And I hope that you've noticed, if you're a therapist, you've already noticed this, certainly, because this is how... What we know, uh, what we do, and how we track development, but as a parent, I hope that you're noticing how all of these skills really aren't original as we move 
from age range to age range. They're all um, incremental in that a child will do something in one age range and then it gets a little bit more complex in the next age range and then it gets a little bit more complex as they grow or age that next three to six months. So that's certainly what's happening here with commands. So by the first part of this age range, our first uh, milestone here is follows two-step unrelated commands. And then by 36 months, the second part of this age range, we want a child to be able to follow a three-step direction without gesture. So there's a huge bump in a child's ability to hold on to that command and that working memory to process those directions and then to be able to execute what we've asked them to do. So that's a big, big thing here about 36 months. The next skill is response to more questions. So they begin to understand more WH questions like when and who. And so previously they've answered and understood what questions and where questions. And now we're including two more important WH question forms. Uh, the next milestone is identifies parts of an object. So now instead of finding just the house in a picture, a child can find the door or find the windows. Or when looking at a tree, he starts to learn parts of the tree like the leaves or the trunk or the, the specific wheels on the car or the door or the windshield. And so certainly as a child gets more vocabulary, you'll start to see him be able to identify more specifics and more details, even uh, with, with a noun. The next milestone is uses more, or I'm sorry, understands more pronouns. And so this would include gender pronouns like she and he and him and her. And so we're going to talk about that. The next command is something that we talked about previously in the expressive show, but this would be really understands negation. So this is no or not plus another word and meaning opposite or rejection. So an important concept, not only for a child to begin to use that we talked about in the previous show, because it kind of comes in where they start saying no, and then they combine it with another word. And here that, that comprehension piece and uh, just extends even more as they begin to understand um, that concept and again that that complexity increases. The next skill is identifies familiar objects by function and this is where we start to kind of think about oh he's able to answer kind of common knowledge questions here and so that just gives you even more of an idea for how a child's receptive and uh, comprehension skills have improved uh, by the time he's three and so we can start to have a child answer some questions like that and so we'll talk about that identifying familiar objects by function. And the last thing we're going to talk about is actually a related cognitive skill, and that's matching. So we're going to talk about the sequence of how kids learn how to match. We have some fantastic clinical applications uh, for looking at this for kids who are having difficulty identifying colors or learning, again, just that next little rung of even academic concepts that are going to start to emerge in a child's development. So those are all of our milestones for today. So what's going on predominantly in this age range? Don't think that that language explosion is over. No, vocabulary continues to expand rapidly by the time a child turns three. Now, we talked about this back in the previous show, and I said I found that at the uh, that we have some differing sources of information. The NIH, in strong contrast to the CDC, by three or by 36 months, lists that typically developing children understand and use 1,000 different words. 
So I, all I can say to that is, wow. I mean, just wow, right? That's an enormous amount of language for a child to have acquired in his first three years. And it's a stark contrast to where most of our little friends are in early intervention, even by the time that we get them three or even on into four. And so even the ones that we consider to be the stars on our caseload and who we may even be discharging and saying, gosh, their language is typically developing now. They are age appropriate. They're within that normal age range and they might be. But remember, we get our kids kind of to that bottom end of normal and we have to think about just that the typically developing peers, the ones right in the middle of the bell curve, are using about a thousand different words. And so we have to keep that in mind so we keep pushing for more and more language opportunities. Uh, for the kids that we see who've really, really struggled with language. All right, so since we're looking at 36-month skills and we're talking about receptive language, I think it's really important that we review a list of uh, some signs of receptive language delay in older toddlers and preschoolers. And so I put this on the third page of your handout, and so go ahead and take a look at that now uh, so that you can see. And let's talk about why this is important so that you'll know again why we're talking about this at this juncture you know right in the middle of this podcast series why are we suddenly starting to to talk about the kids who have uh, some of these problems number one because many friends who have been with us throughout early intervention will continue to be eligible for services and will also continue to struggle with these issues in preschool and so so many times these issues go from being a language issue to now they almost look more academic and sometimes they might even be mistaken for behavioral issues and so we have to certainly make sure that we are aware of the things that could happen and you know we thought about it and it looked like this when they were a toddler but now that they're a preschooler and going into more structured community activities or certainly educational experiences with preschool they're going to look a little bit different so I want to talk to you about this so that you can pass this information along to parents if you are primarily an early intervention provider a birth to three provider they're going to be moving beyond you but we want to send families away from us with great information so they're ready for that next stage. The second reason this is important is that lots of kids with more subtle receptive language issues may not even be identified until preschool. And so our colleagues who work in preschool or maybe even in kindergarten can sometimes, you know, they'll say that a kid shows up for the first day of kindergarten, has got no services and has very, very limited or minimal language. And so we certainly will see kids when they get to this point, they start preschool, mom and dad didn't really think anything was wrong. They think, uh, development is is chugging right along and then they get to preschool have that first little parent teacher conference at three and their worlds are shattered when they realize that there's so many differences between their child and the other children in the classroom and so take a look at this list on your handout when you purchase your handout or remind yourself to take a look at it if you're listening uh, to the podcast later because it's important information so let's talk about what a 36 month old child with receptive language difficulties may look like now at this age. Number one, they may appear to be distracted as though they are not listening. And this is where the the uh, diagnosis ADD, ADHD starts to come. People start to talk about it by this age. They don't ever look like they're 
they're really paying attention to exactly what's going on. They might be daydreaming, which kind of leads to this next one. Because of that, they don't follow instructions when given. And so the same kids who've struggled at home following instructions are now going to struggle at school following instructions. And again, parents may have thought previously that it, that their child was just stubborn or their child was lazy. You know, SLPs hear that all the time for a reason that kids can't talk. And so it may, again... Uh, uh, spill over with uh, uh, now that they're in this more, more. Um, I, I don't want to say rigorous, but a little bit more demanding environment in a school setting, even or even in something like a Mother's Day out. It's different than being at home, and so parents have thought again that their child was lazy or stubborn and didn't just didn't do what they asked because they chose to. But really, it's a language problem, and so these kids aren't going to follow directions at school either. And so that's another important marker. They don't answer questions when asked, or they give unusual answers. Or here's the big one that our little friends with language delays do: they repeat what you've said to them. And so when a teacher asks them <clears throat> something like, I don't know, uh, did you wear a coat to school today? They say, school today. They repeat those last two words because they don't really understand that whole entire question. And she's looking for a yes or a no. And so again, that's kind of confusing. Why is that child doing that? There's a receptive language problem going on there. They find it difficult to listen to stories. And so this is why when a, a child might, uh, again, this might be his first opportunity for a little structured learning environment with little peers. And so he's sitting down for circle time, but he doesn't understand that he's supposed to sit down and listen. And because of his language weaknesses, he doesn't get what the teacher's saying. And if she's not using a book with lots of captivating pictures to hold his attention, what's he going to do? He's going to get up and walk away. And so... We hear, we, we see that difference with those children. They're, they're not listening. They're not, they're not processing that information like with a story that a teacher is trying to read to them. So again, that looks like they have an attention problem. That looks like they can't sit still. That looks like they're, you know, have ants in their pants, whatever you want to say there. And so certainly that may be an indication of a receptive language problem. The next one is they need constant repetition of instructions. <laughs> and so again, you have to repeat yourself over and over and over. And for those kids, sometimes we characterize that as a behavior when really there are those underlying language weaknesses. They may complete some of the instruction and or miss entire steps. And we'll see this a lot when we talk about going from uh, at 24 months and 30 months, we talked about, or 30 months at that two-step unrelated directions, now we're, or, or two-step related directions, now we're bumping them up to two-step unrelated directions and three-step directions without any cues. And so that's a big jump for a lot of our friends. So what do they do? They might hear the last part of a direction and go do that and leave off the first part, or they just hear the first part and ignore the remaining part of the request. So that's certainly something that would indicate that there's a problem with how a child understands and processes language. They may need consistent prompting during class to complete activities. And lots of times, and we'll see this a lot, not necessarily with our little guys who have the major issues, but a lot of times with our little guys who have the milder, more moderate issues, do you know how they get through the day? They look around to see what their little friends are doing and they learn, oh, I better do that too. And so if a teacher's given out a lot of instructions that for whatever reason they've missed, but they see that their little friends are all lining up to go outside, what do they do? They want to line up too. And so you'll see that. And so that's certainly something that we want parents and teachers to be aware of. So super important information to share with teachers and families 
families. It's not that these kids don't talk, because even most of the kids that we're talking about here at 36 months, that that even though we've we've talked about all of these things that they're not doing, most of those kids are talking. And let me just say, very few children are not talking by three. If you're a parent tuning in and you have a three-year-old who's not saying very much, just a handful of words or no words at all, there is a significant problem. Please don't let anybody convince you otherwise. I just I plead with you today to talk with your pediatrician and to, or call your local public school district to get some help. Children talk and they talk way before three. So we want to make that point clear. All right, so we're not talking about talking today. Today we're talking about processing and understanding like a child should. So uh, let's just dive right into our first milestone and get going with this list. Follows two-step unrelated commands. That's our first big comprehension milestone at this age level. And it's a huge one for that we see with kids on our caseloads for various reasons, and we'll talk about that. So when a typically developing toddler is between 30 and 33 months, she begins to understand and follow two-step unrelated commands, like give me the cow and put the horse in the barn. So that would be something totally different. Or comb the baby's hair and then give me a kiss, all right? So this is a jump from those two-step related commands that we just talked about at 24 months. So for that, it might have been, uh, usually it's in, in kind of the pattern that it follows is get an object and do what's expected with that object. So that related skill. So something like if you said get the comb, then what would you say? Comb the baby's hair or get the cow and put him in the barn instead of, you know, getting a completely different animal there. And so those were easier commands, get the object and do something. Now we want kids to do two different things and that's a little harder. So kids have to be able to understand more words and have more of that working memory so that they can keep those pieces there and know what you ask them to do. So what can we do to help kids who are having difficulty from moving from that two-step unrelated command or two-step related command to that two-step unrelated command. How can we help a kid get over that hump? Well, first of all, don't expect them to talk. And I haven't said this in a while in this series for receptive language, so I want to be sure and emphasize it here. When we are working on comprehension and understanding, it might make it too hard for a child, especially when you're introducing a concept that they're really struggling with, that's pretty new, that you're first beginning to target this in therapy. You have to keep it to a receptive task only. And so that's hard for us as SLPs. Certainly by three, we're expecting that kids talk, talk, talk in speech therapy, and we still want that. But again, if we're working with a child who's really struggling with receptive language and auditory processing, we've got to make that simpler. And so we want to keep a lot of these things receptive only, meaning they have to do something to let us know that they understand it, not necessarily that they have to say something. The next uh, thing that we need to do is provide cues beyond our words. Now, this is so important for our little guys with attention issues who also have receptive language delays. We want to give them something visually to call their attention to us, to let them know that we are talking. We are not just wah, 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 wah. We expect some responses. <laughs> we expect their, participa their participation. And so the cues beyond the words, uh, something we're going to talk about a lot in this podcast. We've talked about it a lot in the previous ages, but here uh, we need to remember to keep doing that. So what happens when a kid 
here's a two-step unrelated command and he's not following that, they're usually, like we said before, missing part to that command. So they get lost between step one and step two where they leave off one of those things. And so this is one way that we can really differentiate uh, behavior problems, kids who, again, aren't aren't following a command just because they don't want to versus, hey, I don't really understand what you're asking me to do. And so ignoring and purposeful, willful disobedience is certainly different from a language problem where a kid is looking around and he's trying to figure out what did she ask me to do? Or they may look back at you like, huh? Even if they're not asking that. And so when they're doing that, they're saying to you, hey, I need more than your words. I need you to show me what to do. I've got to have some clues here, some cues to help me know um, uh, what I'm supposed to be doing to stay on task here. And again, these aren't the kids that are just willy-nilly off doing what doing, you know, kind of their own thing there. They're kids that bona fide have this language issue. So what do we do for kids like that? We have to provide assistance with our cues that we were talking about. Now, if you've joined me for the previous shows in this series, you know that I talk about receptive language with with a big tagline that I use for parents, and it's tell him, show him, help him. So that would be our uh, verbal cues, our visual cues, and then our physical or tactile cues. And so here's what we want to do. For these kids, before we give those two-step directions, we have to give some verbal cues, and then we have to give some visual cues too. And so you say something like, now listen, I'm going to tell you two things to do. I want you to give me the cow and then put the horse in the barn. And so see, you're giving that big cue of, hey, there are two things. You've got to listen for that second part there. I found that to be pretty effective. For kids that don't get that with just your your uh, verbal cues there and kind of your light visual cues with the one and then the two, you're going to bump up those visual cues even more. And so you might do something like, say, you know, you're going to say something like, hey, watch me. First, I want you to give me the cow and then I want you to put the horse in the barn. And so you're pointing and maybe even horse in the barn. And so again, you're giving them lots of that visual support while you're doing that. Uh, you could also show them what to do by modeling it. You're going to say, listen, listen. Listen, listen to what I ask. You're going to give me the cow, and then we're going to put the horse in the barn, and you're going to pick it up and do it for them. Uh, And lastly, then if they don't do it, that's when you take their little hands and help them do it themselves. So walk through that whole continuum. Tell him, I'm just going to use my words with that verbal cue. Show him, I'm going to give him the visual cues with my gestures. You know, you're holding out your hands saying, give me the cow. And you're pointing to the horse, pointing to the barn. And then lastly, the uh, tell him, show him, help him. You're going to take his little hands and help him do that last piece. So really big uh, part in helping children understand uh, how to follow those multiple step directions. For kids with lots of difficulty, you're gonna have to break it down even more. So many resources recommend just using single words for those kinds of directions and target each part of that two-step command uh, with with those single words. So you might be saying something, uh, you know, like, Again, it might be saying, you know, let's make your horse jump and then fly. And so instead of saying, let's make your horse and you're you're going to, he's going to have the horse and you're going to say, jump and fly. And again, this is to help kids who are really struggling with this. You're going to minimize the words that you're using, help them get that second part, and then you're going to add more words. Why is this harder? Because even simple two-step commands can include 
four or five keywords. So let's just take that, give me the cow and put the horse in the barn. What are your keywords there? Give me cow, you know, put the horse, you know, put horse and in the barn. That's six or seven different parts, right? So no longer a kid with receptive language issues is going to get lost like that. So uh, for this strategy, again, you might have to use single words with one object to perform two different actions. Like I said, you might have the horse, like we just said, jump and then fly and demonstrate that. Again, you're showing a child that you want to get those two separate parts. If he still doesn't understand, again, you're going to have to do lots and lots of that hand over hand. Let's talk about hand under hand. I had a teacher uh, send me an email a week or two about, ago about this, and I thought it was so good. I want to mention it here. You know, lots of times that hand over hand is so restrictive and kids really balk at that. And then you're really being sort of authoritarian when you're doing that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that because we as adults are certainly in charge of children, right? <laughs> but at the same time, sometimes if we'll use a hand underhand or even the little assistance at the elbow or under the arm, that gives a child more independence. And then they begin to initiate on their own and they're not quite as passive as when we're doing the grab his hand, make him do it, grab his hand, make him do it. So one to mention that. Okay, so for here, what we're really talking about, again, is reducing the complexity of these commands. We were getting a child to do those separate parts, and then we add those additional words. Now, sometimes kids are really confused when you're asking them to do that with a toy, and you're getting different objects, so sometimes you have to break it down to just the kid themselves, and I've had kids that I've had to work on that. You almost feel like you're working on verbs, right? And so you're doing something like, you know, pat your head and then jump, or, and again, I like to do this in the context of little games and so uh, kids have a lot of fun with that and it certainly makes them uh, want to participate more and so this goal is so important functionally and in everyday life at home and in school and so if a child is having difficulty with this goal you have got to practice in uh, everyday routines and so talk to parents about two-step unrelated commands give them tons of examples practice 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 in sessions where they can see you do it uh, and parents again may have to, parents may not even realizing how much they're simplifying all of their child's commands and daily routines and then they're wondering why in the world they're in so much trouble at school and so again that might be the issue and you have to talk with parents about that but most of the time parents are already including multiple step directions during everyday routines and the child's just not following through and for those kids what do you have to do you have to teach a parent how to help their child follow through with every single step of those commands and you, you do that with cueing you don't do that with more discipline or more consequences or anything silly like that I'm talking about cues where they know they've got to tell him show him help him a little bit more of the time sometimes it's just processing time and if we will slow down or repeat these directions and really give a child some extra time to really understand what we're saying that's going to make a difference too. But make sure a child follows through and completes directions on request. And here at this 30 to 33 month level, we're all the way up to two-step unrelated commands. And then we're going to look at it, bumping it up a little bit more for this next milestone. Now we're ready to talk about following three-step directions without gestures. That's a lot, right? <laughs> but kids can really do it here by the time that they reach their third birthdays. So an example would be, and see if you can identify with this, that someone might say, everyone, go over to your cubbies, get your coats on, and then line up at the door. 
that's a command that every preschool teacher in America has given the children in their classrooms over the last winter, right? And so this goal is super functional, is super realistic, and in the average preschool classroom, you're going to hear dozens of these kinds of directions. And so uh, children have to be able to do this. They have to be able to listen, to process, and to follow through with minimal redirection. So what happens when kids can't do this? And this happens, uh, again, in preschool all over every day. When a child can't follow a multiple step direction and he's running off to do his own thing or he's just not listening or he's, he seems to be ignoring, ignoring the teacher or he's busy doing something else, they are labeled as what? They're labeled as a behavior problem lots of times before they're labeled as uh, language. There's a language issue, particularly for children who can already talk. And so maybe there are some expressive language delays and maybe again, not even enough that there's been a referral yet. The child is talking, he's, 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 he's using words, but at the same time, it may not be quite to the level that his little peers are. And so again, when they're not following directions when this happens, maybe somebody has even missed all that. And so they're gonna prematurely be diagnosed with something like ADD or ADHD. And so we have got to target this skill in therapy and we have got to teach parents how to focus on this goal at home so that we can help a child adjust to the demands. It's not that he needs a new diagnosis or medicine or anything else at this point, probably, is that he needs to really focus on learning more language. So providing a teacher or parents with another explanation beyond something about a child's conduct, you know, would be really, really helpful for that child and for that family and for that teacher. All right, so what do we do to teach a child to follow multiple step commands? We work on it a lot. <laughs> and we do what we just talked about uh, back for the previous goal with our visual, our verbal, our visual, and our tactile cues, along with extra processing time. Sometimes with these kids, again, you may have to back up and just teach three single words in a row so that they understand, or three single command words in a row so that they understand she is asking me to do three different things here. And so again, don't forget that you can start by having a child do these things with himself rather than by muddying it up with another object. I mentioned this sort of, and I, I didn't talk about it really back in the last milestone, so let's talk about it here. I like to work on these things with in therapy with games, and so you might think about it like a Simon Says game where you're given some instructions, but leave out that tricky part for three-year-olds. They're not gonna understand that yet. So something like, pat your head, turn around and give me five, or jump, kick, and then fall down, where you know, you've got three instructions. And again, I'm doing like I did before, where I'm giving those uh, visual cues, where I'm holding up you know, the, my fingers to represent each part of that instruction. And so this is a great activity for siblings to do with the child that you're working with, or for uh, little peers in a daycare situation, or a little preschool program. Even a mom at home with just a mom and a, their child, these kinds of games are so, fun. So you might stand in a circle or if you have little peers or neighbors there, stand in a circle and get everyone to do these things. If stand, Sometimes when we stand up and play those things, so that's kind of an invitation to run away. So for those kids, you kind of huddle them in and sit down in a little circle. But you're playing games where you're given those three different directions in a row. Now remember, and again, as a sequence there. So you're saying, like we said, you know, something like, you know, uh, give me five, blow a kiss, and then fall down. You know, those things are fun for 
uh, kids in this age range to be able to do. Now, three-step directions are super challenging for many of our little friends, uh, not only because of the language issues, but because of memory and attention. And just because I've said, you know, about a child being labeled with an attention issue at three doesn't mean that children don't have attention issues. They certainly can. There can certainly be some memory issues if a child has some a cognitive component in addition to the language issue. So you have to keep working on providing the practice and therapy. Provide as many cues as the child needs. Don't start out providing a lot of cues because sometimes we over-cue and then children become so dependent on that. We really want them relying on their auditory systems so that they're really listening, that they're not requiring that constant redirection or that constant visual cueing. But if they need it, provide it and then reduce those cues or lessen that support over time so that they don't become overly dependent on it. Uh, although we target this in everyday routines with those three-step directions without gestures, you've got to come up with some fun games to do that too. And again, therapists are you typically, we're pretty great at coming up with these kinds of games to practice. And so, uh, like I said before, if you are looking for ideas, if you think I'm not very creative, I don't know how many directions to come up with this off the top of my head, get yourself the little uh, vocabulary uh, sheets that I mentioned before. I, I didn't include them from 36 months on in this series, but every show uh, in this podcast series from show 450 through now at 458, so we've got seven shows that you um, have a vocabulary list so that you can go back and look at that list and you can pull those verbs out and use that uh, to with the little uh, friends that you're working with to help you get some ideas for some directions that you could give them. All right, uh, we talked about relay games. These are so fun too. You could just lay out all kinds of objects across the room. And again, this isn't really following a typical three-step direction, but this part would come first where you've got a lot of objects and you tell the child, I want you to go get the shoe, the ball, and the truck. Go find the shoe, the ball, and the truck. And if they can't do that, no way are they going to be able to follow a three-step direction without cues. So again, these are just some ideas that have worked for me. Uh, this is your starting point for therapy for lots of our little friends with receptive language delays that have lingered uh, to this 36-month-old level. And then once kids have mastered, like finding those three objects, then you work on those longer commands. And you might make them related commands for a while, but again, remember what you're working for. Um, all this listening training, again, it will pay off over time. Don't feel like as a speech-language pathologist that you're wasting time working on those kinds of things because every time we build up that receptive language, we are increasing a child's expressive language potential, right? And so very, very worthy goal, worthy of your time and attention in therapy. Uh, these things have worked so well for me, for my little guys over the years. So start those games today if you're not already doing that. Our next milestone is identifies parts of an object. So a child with typically developing skills can point out several parts of an object by the time that they reach their third birthday at 36 months. So for example, when a child is playing with Thomas the Train, he can find the wheels. He can find the different facial body parts on Thomas. He can find a window. If there's a window, I can't remember if he has a little window down there or not. But any specific 
parts there. If you're playing with the barn, he can find the door. He can find the windows on the barn. He can find the stalls inside if he knows that word. He can find the trough. So again, the different parts here. So we target the skill by teaching the various parts of an object in play and then asking a child to locate that part. Now, why is this skill important? It is so important that children, again, begin to expand their vocabulary so they're learning more and more words. And this is also an important precursor to finding details in a picture. And so, again, children learn how to do this first with objects and then, you know, all of our testing and so much of our teaching is primarily through literacy opportunities. So we have to have children uh, do these skills with their, you know, in real life, 3D, with, with their objects that are happening because then we're going to transfer them on again to that next little level. So this is certainly something that parents can begin to do too when they're looking at a book with their child is to point out parts of those uh, pictured objects and talk about those things. And again, it's a super, super way to target vocabulary development. So let's say they're looking at a picture of a bicycle. You know, dad needs to say, find the tires or show me the seat or where, where's the boys, where are the boys shoes or show me the boys shirt. And so again, that they're looking for those real specific, uh, little uh, details that they maybe haven't found before. It's actually a really fun goal to practice, and it's one that you almost always can turn over to parents to really talk about. I try to work on this in every play routine that I do with a child. Again, to really, for me, I'm always thinking about that vocabulary development piece, and you're, again, always wanting to model that for parents. You know, push for this new word. Let's push for this, especially when we're, when we're marching toward three here as children get older on our caseloads. Now, some of you who, who work with older children may think, you know, three-year-olds, those are still babies, and they are. But there's so much that we've got to, again, uh, we, we reviewed that typically developing children know a thousand different words by the time they're three. And our little guys, again, are really, really struggling with that. So we want to never miss an opportunity to keep bumping up that complexity. I like doing this too in therapy because it lets me know right away which words the child doesn't know and those become vocabulary goals for you too. So keep pointing out those parts of objects and teach your parents how to work on that at home as well. Now this next milestone is a big one. It understands more pronouns including gender and plural pronouns. So let's talk about pronouns before we get right to the goal. Misunderstanding pronouns is a huge marker for the presence of a language disorder rather than the presence of a delay in young children. And I'm not talking about just little routine errors that a child might make as he or she would be learning these new milestones or these new pronouns with this milestone. I'm talking about this persistent problem that you've worked on this for a little while and a child is having marked difficulty acquiring these pronouns. So it's really important that we address pronouns from a comprehension perspective. You know, right now we're talking about receptive language before we get to the expressive language issues that are sure to erupt when a child really doesn't understand words like boy and girl and him and her and uh, she and uh, uh, those uh, kinds of his, hers, those kinds of gender pronouns. And so we really, really, really have to take the time to teach it receptively before we move on to the expressive piece. Now, as a speech-language pathologist, you should already know that, but so many times we get caught up in the, the child has to say it, say it, say it, when really we should be focusing on making sure he understands it first. So by their third 
birthdays. Let's talk about the pronouns that we should be really, really uh, teaching by now. So toddlers should discriminate early gender pronouns. So this is going to be he, she, his, him, and her, right? Hers. All right. So in all those forms, hers may not come in until after 36 months, but there it's not on the list, but that's just an example. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Let's just go ahead and address this <laughs> before we get too far into this. Right now, there are some of you on the other side of the screen who do not want to go near teaching gender pronouns <laughs> because of all of the things that are going on in the world right now with all of that, all of the upheaval. I hear you on that. But it's so important for our little ones with language issues to learn and to figure out. So we've got to do it. Now, I'm going to discuss the traditional ways that I have taught and that probably you have taught gender pronouns, which are still, even in 2023, very effective <laughs> for the children on my caseload. So I just that's all I'm going to say about that. All right. So but before we begin to teach the gender pronouns, we have to be sure that a child understands what he's got to understand gender, meaning boys versus girls before we get to he and she and him and her. All right. So when it's applicable, the very best thing to do is use the child's family members. Sister is a girl. Brother is a boy. And so mommy is a girl. Daddy is a boy. Probably. <laughs> so start there. So you're going to contrast boys and girls with characters in play. And, and it's so much easier if you do them with people characters versus animal characters. When you start doing like in Paw Patrol, I know that Chase is a boy and that Sky is a girl. Or Elmo is a boy on Sesame Street. Uh, Big Bird is a boy. But that's a little more difficult, a little more challenging for children to figure out. So you may have to use traditional uh, characters and people characters that are traditionally look like a very feminine or very masculine so that a child learns this at the beginning and then you can teach all the differences and all the other stuff that you might want to teach about that. So you've got to get the boy-girl part down first. So play with lots of toys and talk about that and again using a child's family members are the very best way uh, to accomplish that goal. So once a child has mastered gender then, then and only then do you transition naming your boys and girls with pronouns instead of calling them boy and girl. But again, you're going to have to play and you're going to have to teach the boy and girl for a while before you would begin to teach these pronouns. As I said before, um, I like to use traditional depictions of this. So I like to use really generic dolls for this. And again, I don't really like dolls to teach this with lots of preconceptions. So Barbie, if you're trying to teach this with Barbie and say she, almost always a child is going to uh, just defer to calling Barbie Barbie and so it's harder to teach it with the gender pronoun unless you are really using something that again doesn't already have a name for the child so that's why I like to use those cheap dolls from like the dollar store uh, that again look definitively male or female and play and just emphasize those gender pronouns and remember what we learned about in uh, our uh, previous show in 457 that we just talked about varying the input for everything except your goal, but you hold your goal, the stable word. And so here um, to apply that, you know, you're going to be really talking about your boy there. He, the boy is, you know, swinging or whatever he's doing. The boy, he, 
slides. And so let's say if we had just a generic doll, a generic boy doll, and uh, a playground thing there. And so we would use the pronoun he with lots of other uh, options for that boy to do. We're going to keep he there. And did you notice what I did too, and I didn't mention it, is I used, at the beginning, you may still have to use boy and girl to really kind of double name or double Q or Q, however you want to think about it, and say, you know, he, the boy, or the boy, he is whatever, you know, whatever you're going to have him do and, and be your verb there in that situation. Now, again, you don't want to do that for very long because that sounds unnatural. And here we're talking about receptive language. So this is when we're just beginning to teach it. And so uh, that's what we want to do. But, you know, you've got to pull that back. If you start out using a lot of those he, the boy, where you're really providing that referent there, uh, again, um, you don't want that to last. You don't want a child to be able to start to say that. So just use that when you're in the receptive uh, portion of your teaching here. If a boy is using uh, he and she incorrectly, as they invariably will with this, don't do a ton of overcorrecting with no, that's a boy. That's not a girl. You call a boy he, you know, and you go on and on and on about it. Just recast it and you say, uh-oh, that's a boy. He will run. The boy is running. He runs. And so again, do it uh, gently <laughs> uh, without, just with your words at this point and without over explanation because sometimes we mess that up. We go on and on and on and on and we confuse the situation even more. All right, and remember the strategy that we just I just mentioned about increasing our variability there. All right, let's talk about the word it. We need to teach the pronoun it. We usually teach that with objects, not animals or characters that already have a personality or a name because like with Thomas the Train, we know he's a boy, right? Because his name is Thomas, so we're not going to call him it. So you want to there is some conflict, uh, too, about that. There's also some conflict even about when the pronoun it emerges in Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual. I had it on a later list, but now norms have it as one of the earliest developing pronouns back with me, my, and mine, and I, and you. Uh, and I think it probably moved back earlier because of those holistic phrases. I got it. I did it. And kids uh, use it in that way and learn to generate it within the context of those phrases. All right, so... After we've uh, talked about he and she, and again, model, 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 use those, uh, use real life with siblings and family members, use characters with those structured play things, and certainly we're going to use our books with our literacy activities. After that, after the subjective forms with he and she, we're going to get our objective forms in with him and her, so give it to him, give it to her. I pra you're going to have to practice that in play too. Uh, and I'm not giving a ton of examples here because if you're a preschool therapist, <laughs> this is kind of one of your standard goals and you already have your uh, go-to activities that you do. I want to just talk about this for introduction for uh, those of us who primarily work with toddlers. And this for, uh, let's just be frank, a lot of these goals where we get up to the 36-month level, if you are a birth to three SLP, you may rarely work on these because the majority of your kids may not be to this developmental level before they're discharged or age out of your program and move on to preschool. And so these are just ideas, again, to really, really get you started. If you have uh, children who are four and five and working on pronouns, you're probably gonna do a lot more beyond that who are still struggling with that. These are just the ideas for the kids when uh, this is emerging and we are initially teaching that. 
All right, the possessive forms of pronouns emerge during this period and the next, and I'm talking about the terms his and her, and you're gonna just teach these in the same way with generic dolls, and I always start out with body parts and clothing items on his and her because it's so distinctly, uh, distinctively uh, illustrated for kids when we're looking. Those are obviously his shoes if they're on his body. That's obviously her hair if it's on her head. So that's just kind of a little uh, trick that I've learned as well. Um, and so certainly you can expand with that using sets of props with the dolls, but that would be after you master those earlier things. And you're not going to move on to his car and her car and um, his house and her house and all those things that you're going to teach with your dolls and your props and all the wonderful activities and props and uh, uh, materials that you come up with, but you got to get these basics first. And that's my only point about that. We're going to use simpler activities to establish the concept and then we're going to branch out. Don't make it that difficult at the beginning. If you are an early intervention SLP and you haven't taught a lot of pronouns before, don't make it harder than it is in the beginning. Start simple with the kinds of ideas that we've talked about here. Now, after we've spent a fair amount of time with real life activities and our everyday routines with our families and with our toys, then we're gonna move on to pictures. So for our uh, literacy activities, much better than flashcards, right? Because you've got the whole little story there and uh, all of that rather than just independent card after independent card after independent card. We can target these pronouns in books. It's so easy in any book with pictures of boys and girls. You can read the story if a child is into that or usually most of the time I'm just talking about the pictures and don't even really get to the story until later. Give lots of visual cues even when you're starting over with those pictures. Be sure to reference you know that boy he is petting the cat. That girl, she is picking up the basket, you know, whatever they're doing with that picture. So be sure that you are doing that. Uh, fantastic goal for parents to target at home. Do not get discouraged with our little guys who have receptive language delays as you're working on this because this may take a long time. Start simple and expand and be sure to share the tips that we discuss with parents because those can go a long way at home too. The next milestone is understands negation. Now a toddler with typically developing language begins to use negation by 30 months and we're going to talk about this here at the 36 month level because as I've already said a couple times on the show now, different uh, assessment tools list this at uh, different ages. So we're going to go ahead and talk about this here, but it feels like it might be a little bit out of order. Now negation means understanding not plus another word or no plus another word. So we're kind of un doing so it's making it opposite or making it the negative portion uh, or, or, or concept of whatever you're talking about so on your handout I've given you lots of examples so that's not daddy is not plus a noun not sleep is not uh, plus a verb or not sleeping or no sleep not in there is not plus a preposition not big is not plus a descriptive word or an adjective there so we can also think about negation as using contractions like don't and can't uh, and we certainly think about uh, using this not only with not but with no as in no more cookies or no running so those are the examples that we're looking for now like we talked about back in the previous show most toddlers are going to begin to use the word no as a way to refuse an item even before they truly understand negation in the examples before and that's why I think there might be some variability 
and uh, when that's listed on different assessments too. And so how do we teach negation? We teach negation with words from different categories to be sure that the child understands the concept. And we just reviewed that when I gave you those examples. So as we've discussed with teaching our other milestones, we have to use visual cues with this. So obviously, what is the most natural visual cue you're going to use when you're teaching negation? You're going to shake your head no <laughs> when you're saying all of this. So if you're saying no jumping on the couch, or no, that's not daddy, or no, daddy's not home, or uh, no, it's not big. That one is not big. It's very little. It's not big. Whatever your example is there, your number one teaching strategy here is providing that visual cue. And so we've got a, uh, another thing that we want to do, and we've talked a lot about this as well, is we want to start simple. So we want to start with demonstrating negation with real people and real objects and everyday routines and in structured experiences to teach that uh, particular skill rather than teaching with pictures. And I think I've said this before even on this show, but please don't start out with pictures. Even when we're teaching a child who's really almost about to be three and as an early intervention SLP, we do think about our almost three-year-olds as the oldest kids on our caseload. But again, we still have to keep in mind that these uh, kids, even though they're older, they have had difficulty learning language and so we still need to make things simple and still need to be sure that we're using everyday real life activities versus over relying on early literacy skills to teach everything. We need to start in the here and now. So let's talk about some examples. When you're playing with the farm set, you could try to hook the trailer on an animal or on a vehicle where it doesn't belong. And you'll say, does the trailer go here? No, not there, not there, it goes over here. And so again, we're really contrasting the concept of negation so they understand what that means. You offer a child a snack they don't want, like strawberries, and she refuses with the gesture, you know, the turn away and the handout. So you label no strawberries and you encourage her to imitate that. You want her to wash her hands and she doesn't want to do it. You know, what should you model there? No wash or not yet or something like that. And again, sometimes parents get a little wigged out because they think, I don't want to teach them to be negative. I don't want to give her the words for that. She's going to do it non-verbally anyway. <laughs> she, like we said, with the gesture, with the hand turn away. So we've got to get those words in there. Now, of course, we already model this kind of thing, like no yelling, you know, when a child is being too loud or doing something like that. But we've got to think about these opportunities and we've got to think what we're really, really teaching uh, when we uh, have these opportunities that just come up in the middle of the day. Now, I don't think we've talked about the words incidental teaching, but there's there, there's a name for that. This is actually a strategy. It's whenever you're teaching whatever kind of comes up, that's called incidental teaching. So if you're ever at a loss to, for what kind of thing you're going to put for a note that you've uh, just for a session you've just done with the family where you've just kind of done whatever the family wanted to do, incidental teaching is your strategy there. So we've talked about ideas for everyday routines. Now let's talk about some ideas for some structured experiences where we can help a child understand negation. And remember here, I'm just trying to give you some examples of things that have worked really, really well for me. So one of the best things would be taking a well-known character that a child knows to teach negation and calling it the wrong name. So if they are fans of Sesame Street, and you might bring out Cookie Monster, a Cookie Monster toy, and then just say, hi, Elmo, hi, Elmo. Oh, we're gonna play, 
hopefully the child is going to do something to interrupt you at that point where, to let you know, hey, that is not Elmo, that is Cookie Monster. And you go with that. And so then you are saying, oh, you're right. It is not Elmo. That is not Elmo. And you're using all your gestures and all your facial expressions and all your body language to really indicate that too. That's how we teach that. One of my other favorite things to do is to take a series, and it, you know, you'll see lots of little books with this theme, but do it in real life first. So take like a little series of toys. I like to do it with baby dolls. And I kind of think about this as the bad baby game. <laughs> to teach negation, but I'm going to have maybe four baby dolls, and I have the first three do the same thing. So, oh, this baby's sleeping. Oh, baby's sleeping. Oh, baby's sleeping. And then make the last baby jump up and run or do something, and you say, oh, the baby's not sleeping. Now, toddlers think this kind of thing is hysterical when you do it, and you can just come up with all kinds of other things that the babies are doing. Oh, this baby is drinking. Oh, this baby's drinking. Oh, this baby's drinking. And you have this baby, what? Spit out the bottle, throw it, throw it, do something. Oh, this baby's not drinking. And again, it really teaches the concept uh, in a way that a child will really, really understand it. So that's certainly something I like to do. Now, pictures from counting books are also another fun way to target negation. And so when you're looking at pictures in counting books, you usually have what? Like on, on one page, you'll have like one ball. And then on the next page, you have like two babies. And then on the next page, you have like three dogs or something like that. And so you can certainly... Uh, use this kind of thing, you know, with books, you're saying dog, 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 and then turn the page and say, not dog. That is not a dog. Look, dogs, not dog. And so that's certainly some way, uh, a way that I have uh, taught that too. So books of opposites are also easily used for this goal, but instead of using both words, so like, let's say that you have a page with a book wet and dry. So you, instead of wet and dry, you would say wet and what? not wet. So that's a way that you can teach negation too. Now here's the caution and I mentioned it previously but I want to say it again here. Sometimes the child responds inaccurately to these kinds of questions because he doesn't understand the original word. So when you're teaching negation, if you're teaching like I said wet and not wet, he's got to understand wet before he understands not wet, right? So make sure the child understands the vocabulary before you use it to teach negation. So that's why I like starting with nouns before we move on to doing it with verbs or with uh, descriptives like we just did there with wet and dry. So be sure that you get that, that part right first so that you don't make it harder than it needs to be. The next milestone is comprehends more questions. So remember, this is a receptive language goal, not an expressive goal. So this means that the child is really going to understand uh, the question, and that's what we're looking for here. So a child has to understand the question before he can answer the question. So we're gonna review this sequence again for how children acquire the ability to understand questions. And again, we're, we're naturally gonna look at the responses because looking at the responses, what? It lets you know that they whether they understand it or not, but I just want you, if you can, if you can separate those two, to really separate that and just think about the receptive piece as we're moving through this information. Many of the children we see are still struggling with processing language at 36 months, so we wanna review this here to be sure that we're not missing any gaps because conceivably you could have a child who's moved along expressively, who's just having some little red flags receptively, but you might've missed this. This might, you, you might think that sometimes 
what he's having is an expressive problem when really it's just masking the receptive problem. So just like difficulty with pronouns, um, it's a huge marker for kids with language disorders, not just delays. All right, so let's talk about what we want kids doing with questions by the time they reach 36 months. So here, so this, this is how question um, answering and responding emerges. So between one and two, so those ages, so this is before we get to our age range here by 30 to 36 months. So between one and two, they're going to look in the appropriate place when asked a simple question like, where's mommy? So instead of saying she's right there, <laughs> the first thing a child is going to do is what? Look over there. Or maybe even the next stage would be what? He's pointing. He's going to point to indicate to answer a question. So it's not just eye gaze anymore. He's moved up to using a gesture. This is when kids start to do a lot of body parts. When you're saying, where's your nose? Show me your hair. Find your belly. So that's, that's kind of in the continuum where we are with this. So the next thing that a child learns to do, and this is still as a child is moving closer to two, so well under where we're talking about here at 30 to 36 months, but this is when kids choose an object when asked a choice of two. So you could say, do you want milk or juice? And they would pick one of those. You want a cookie or a cracker? So that's the next kind of response that they would give. The next kind of response that they would give is they answer where questions when asked to point to an item in a book. So that would be that you say, where's the ball? Where's the car? They're answering those questions, but again, it's with a nonverbal response. Next, they start to get the verbal response. They can answer to name familiar objects when you ask them, what's that? So you could say, what's that? And they would say, baby, or what's that? Flower. And so the next kind of question that they learn how to answer is answering a yes or no question with a nod or a shake of their heads. And that's related to something that's uh, in their immediate environment or super familiar to them. Like, do you want a drink? Yes or no? That would be the kind of thing. Now, those are the things that emerge between one and two. Why am I telling you this when we're talking about skills at the 30 to 36 month level. Because if you have a child who's struggling with these questions, this is your starting point. You're not ready to get to that other phase. And remember what I said a minute ago, you could conceivably have a child who is moving along with expressive language and who is moving along with all these other things, but answering questions are just, just the thing that really kind of still is his biggest challenge. So that's what I wanted to walk you through. So if you get a child who, again, isn't doing these things, start there first. All right, the next rung of questions, and this is between ages two and three, so this is where we are, and I want you to look at the jump in complexity here. So now they're moving toward things that are more difficult. So now they can point to objects when described. So instead of saying, where's your hat, you give them more words and you ask about this object function that we've started talking about. Uh, that we're going to talk about next. It's the next milestone. So you ask them something like, what do you wear on your head? And they point to the hat. So can you see how that's a much harder question? As a therapist, of course, you recognize that bump up. But as a parent, they may not understand what a leap that is. So you've got to really talk to parents again about, we've got to have the vocabulary there to be able to support them uh, to really reach this goal. The next kind of question that they can answer is a simple WH question, and, and these are going to be your what's that, where, what's 
blank doing, like what's daddy doing, what's mommy doing, what's the dog doing, and then who questions, who is, you know, who's that, or who's your, you know, who is your mommy, so then they're kind of pointing to which person. They also answer or understand, can you questions, you know, can you bring me your shoes, sometimes they say no, right? <laughs> they know they can do it, but again, that they're answering, they're letting you know, yes or no, am I going to do this for you, and then they also, as as they get right at 36 months, they start to answer critical thinking questions like, what do you do when you're cold? What do you do when you're hungry? What do you do when you are scared? Those kinds of things. So can you see that big jump in comprehension? So lots of times as early intervention therapists, we're just focused on what? Those, those questions that I talked about back at that one to two year level, instead of bumping kids on up and working on those things that are at this two to three year level. So I wanted to make you aware of that continuum there so you could start to really think about that. Some of us have to bump up our games, don't we? Right, all right, so let me go ahead and just give you some general tips right now for teaching a child to respond to questions. And these are gonna be the strategies that you teach parents, especially when a child is still struggling with those even earlier forms that we talked about that emerge between one and two, even before they get to the things that we talked about that are more difficult between two and three. So let's talk about some general tips for teaching a child to respond to questions. Number one, we need to use forced choice questions rather than open-ended questions. So what do I mean by that? An open-ended question is something like, what do you want for lunch? A forced choice question is when you say, what do you want for lunch? Chicken or spaghetti? or you know, whatever. So even when a child can't answer verbally yet, he's still more likely to understand and respond with a gesture especially if you're using visual cues, but, but by this point, we don't really need to be doing that as much, right? Because we want kids, what? To rely on their auditory systems, right? They've got to understand more and more and more words. So again, this was just that general tip for teaching a child to, um, to respond. So those forced choice questions are always going to be easier for a child to answer than open-ended questions. Um, so instead of, let's give this example that parents will say, I can never get my child to answer what he did at school today. He's never able to tell me what he did at school. Well, first of all, he may not have enough working memory to remember what he did at school, especially when you're asking him during that, that thing. He might remember it on his own later and want to talk about it, but in that kind of forced situation right there, he may not have enough memory and or enough vocabulary to be able to come up with an answer. So asking a question like, did you play in the gym or outside? Um, who did you play with today? You know. Willow or Emmy, uh, uh, what did you have for lunch today or snack? You know, those kinds of things where you're giving them the answer. It helps if you know the answer. <laughs> so for preschool, we rely on the little sheets of the reports that we get from teachers. But that forced choice is always going to be a, the best option when we start with kids who have difficulty answering questions. Another real obvious thing that we want to do is make sure that we have a child's attention to make sure that's not the issue. So when a child isn't responding to our questions, we watch his actions. If he's tuning you out non-verbally, you know, he's turned away, he's continuing with whatever he's doing, is not only the language, you've got to get his attention first. So you've got to make eye contact. And if he's not making eye contact with you from across the room, get, get right in his little space, get down in that face-to-face -face level. And that's certainly something that you have to teach parents how to do too, if they're not already naturally doing that. The third strategy is really obvious as well. You're going to simplify what you're asking. So many times toddlers with language delays, 
their default is what? It's tune out <laughs> when the question is too difficult. So try to simplify what you're asking, use fewer words, reword the question, or ask again after she's had a few minutes to process what you've said. And even if she's attending and maybe even looking around but not responding, it's so likely that children, especially those with language delays, are really searching for the answer. So don't forget about our tell him, show him, help him cues so that she can follow through or he can follow through with what you're asking them to do and respond. So when you're saying, where's your backpack? You know, use your big facial expressions, use your gestures, your body language when they haven't gotten it from the auditory cue at the beginning and then with your cues with, uh, like we talked about before, with your pointing, with your giving little hints. Oh, I think it may be where you left it yesterday. Where do you leave your backpack? And again, those kinds of things to help a children learn how to think, learn how to remember. And again, you're working on not the only the language there, but that memory piece as well. All right, be sure you're sharing these strategies with teachers and with parents. And again, so that the language problem that a child um, the language problem a child is having is often masked by these behavioral issues, especially by the time they get to be three and especially by the time that they're out of our care for a large portion of the day with a teacher or in some other little program like that. So be sure that we're sharing all this information so that everybody's on the same page and we're helping children really move that through that continuum so that they are able to the best of their ability begin to accurately respond to those questions. The next milestone is a big one, and it's one we've already talked about. And again, it's that, that kind of milestone that makes you think, wow, this child has really learned a lot by the time we get to this 30 to 36-month level, and it identifies familiar objects by function. So typically, developing toddlers can do this by the time they're 30 months old. So uh, we're kind of talking about it a little bit late. We could have actually talked about it in the previous show, but I bumped it onto this one because it's certainly one that lots of our little guys in early intervention will struggle with because it's again we're using words to talk about other words so that meta language or metacognition or however you want to think about that so this would an example would be like from a test find the one that you use to fix your hair or which one is for cutting you know so a child would have to find a comb or find a knife so to prep for this goal you're going to have to start a lot earlier than when you want a child to actually be able to perform this skill. So you can't just start out really asking a kid with a language delay something like, which one do you wear on your feet when you haven't, when you've only just been talking about, get your shoes, put on your shoes, we wear your shoes, when you haven't gone that extra step to be able to really explain object functions that's where I think a lot of our little guys with language delays where they're kind of missing that we haven't really taken as much time as we needed to really teach all of those other things and that's why it's so valuable to think about working on receptive language just as hard as we focus on expressive language so to prep for this goal we've got to state the object's function as we're labeling so for example we should have been saying things like let's get your shoes we wear shoes on your feet or here's your cup your cup is for drinking so that's your step one if you have a kid who's not able to do this yet and you first started working on it for weeks, you should really be focused with parents on explaining every object by function so they start to hear uh, some of those words. Now, with typically developing children, we certainly don't do that kind of, we don't provide those structured uh, teaching experiences and structured experiences <clears throat> to help them learn it. They just may naturally 
they've, they've picked up on these kinds of things without a ton of explanation. But remember, our, our little guys with language delays need the benefit of that extra teaching and that those real specific circumstances so they learn it. So again, I think about this as common knowledge questions, but again, we've got to teach it all day long. It's going to be hard for you to sit down in the context of a therapy session, even over several weeks, and really teach this. You have got to have parental buy-in for this. So they have to say things like, here's your coat. We wear coats to keep us warm when it's cold outside. So that extra little explanation, get your fork. You use a fork when you eat. Uh, Where's the cup? What's the cup for? Yes, a cup is for drinking. We take our, we drink from our cup. We drink juice from a cup. All those things. So stating an object's function. It's a standard language facilitation strategy that we share par with parents all the time. So we have got to keep it going uh, for here at this level. Hopefully you've gotten that started even before now. So I like to work on this a lot with, uh, in, not only everyday routines like we've talked about, but those structured experiences and therapy sessions. So I do this a lot with puzzles. So uh, let's say you're doing a transportation puzzle. And so just start by looking at the functions. You know, which one flies? That's the airplane. What rides on the tracks? That's the choo-choo. Show me the one that says beep, beep. You know, that's the race car. Or in play, you might work on it more naturally. So when you're playing in the kitchen with a kitchen set, you know, oh, we need to cook our hot dogs. Where are we going to cook our hot dogs on? What do we need for cooking? You know, we need a pan. We need the stove. You know, where should we put our food? Where's that hot dog go? It goes on the plate. You know, what goes with the hot dog? You know, the bun. That, that's not a great example, but you get my point. We're going to talk about those object functions throughout the whole play routine. Start with the simple, the ones that they do every day if they're having difficulty with this, you know, like shoes or a hat or a coat. Again, those very familiar objects that they use and then bump it up to that next little rung of awareness in their environments. So again, our, our strategy here is pairing an explanation with every new noun that we target. And again, we remember we said that the language explosion doesn't stop. At 24 months, which has been in this pre these previous periods, we've got to still do this even with new words. So teaching a new word like an elevator. Oh, this is an elevator. When we get inside, the doors close and we ride up or we ride down, whatever you're doing. Or look at this paper clip. Here's my paper clip. I use it to hold my papers together. So anything that we're doing, that we're bumping up that language, that we're teaching that new word, don't forget that you've got to teach... Um, that new object function too. It's a really important milestone and here I kind of think about it for language delayed kids as this is where the rubber meets the road. This isn't just naming things anymore or uh, even learning something simple like the label that I put on a verb. This is where we're using words to talk about other words <laughs> and I just again can't explain explain to you uh, how, how important this is with making that next jump up, especially with our kids who have so struggled as toddlers and early preschoolers with language. The expe expectations just keep getting higher and higher and higher for our kids. So this is an important milestone. It lays the foundation for inferences and for analogies and for all this for riddles and jokes and 
everything else that's about to be so exciting and that kids are about to acquire with their new language skills. So it's such an important milestone. And again, it shows you that a child can use words to answer questions about what he's thinking or what he knows. And it certainly, again, lays the foundation for the skills to come. So if you're not routinely working on this skill as a pediatric speech language pathologist, I would just encourage you to really, really think about this or even another therapist, a developmental interventionist. It is so important and be sure that you're teaching parents these strategies too. Finally, we're to our last skill today, which is matching. And it's really not a language skill, but it's so closely related to so many things that are going on with a child's language development that I want to talk about it here. So what is matching? Matching, again, it's not a language concept. It's a cognitive concept. And remember what's cognition? It's how a child learns. And part of learning is what? It's thinking, it's remembering, it's making associations and connections. So here, again, the reason that matching is so important and why it's related to language is that it's also important for academic skills. And so it comes in, uh, we start to see it be important with letter recognition. Can he match this capital A to this capital A? Or does he learn that the, this number three, you know, is he going to be able to match it to the other number three? So you can see, again, how important this is going to be again, the, uh, and it's a foundational skill for everything else that a child is going to learn after this. So speech language pathologists, sometimes you may not think that you work on matching, but oh, you do. When you complete a puzzle, you're matching uh, that kind of thing or with a shape sorter. So it's certainly an important skill that we uh, need to emphasize with our children with language delays. Now, many times children on our caseload need more structured teaching in order to learn to match. And again, these would be our children that don't just have a language issue. These are kids who have more global developmental delays. And because this is a cognitive skill, you know, these are our kids who struggle with acquiring their cognitive skills too. So there's a cognitive delay as well. So let's talk about the, uh, the sequence that we use to teach matching is generally learned in a sequence. And so if you start out too hard, the child's not going to be able to do it. So what do I mean? Well, uh, let's talk about how it emerges. So matching starts first with object to object. So that's with like object to like object. So they can take a group of toys, so it's like sorting, so you can have balls versus trucks. And so a child would be able to get all the balls in one pile and all the trucks in another pile. And so that has to happen first. And so what I was talking about with the continuum, sometimes you may not start out that simple. You might start out with something like matching by color, which comes way after that. And so my point here is you've got to look at the foundational pieces and start where the child is having problems. So if you have a kid who can't match by color, go all the way back to the beginning. Can he match object to object? The next one is matching object to what? Picture. So this is, and I've talked about this, and I'm going to mention this later. I won't give you the example now, but this is a really fun thing to do in therapy, and it's certainly a little kit that you can set up as a therapist that I hope you're doing this already, but matching object to picture is next. Then we match picture to picture. That would be what? Like what? Like puzzles. We have a great example of that, you know, in our, our routine that we do all the time, right? And then finally we match by color. So let me give you some examples for all of these to be sure that you're covering your basis with the child and know what to work on if a child isn't yet able to match by color or even by picture. And again, matching by color is the skill that we're uh, targeting really at this age, but I just wanted to give you this preliminary information because sometimes 
like I said before, we get to the skill and we start trying to teach it and the kid doesn't know how to do it and then we're at a loss. Well, well, what do we do? We can't do it. And a lot of times it's because he's missed the three or four steps that come before that. So you've got to back up to that original step and then help a child move forward. So what do we do? We teach a child to match object to object. So use two of the same real items. I usually just look for duplicates in the toy box in a child's home so you can match blocks to blocks or cars to cars if they have that kind of thing. If you need to establish this, if you're a new therapist just getting started, go to the dollar store or Walmart and buy several identif identical small cheap toys to target this skill and have kids do it. You know, just put put a lot of items maybe even in a bag together and then just have them on the floor and start matching your pairs. And so you're going to put your two blocks together and you're going to put your two baby dolls together and then you put your two trucks together. You can do that. If a kid can't do that, then you're going to have to go back to sorting like I talked about in the example where you might have five or six baby dolls and five or six shoes and you know you're, the baby dolls go in one uh, one pile and the shoes go in the next. And I think we talked about this in a previous show. I wish I'd written that down but again that's that's just such a good example about um, how all these things evolve in a continuum. For a fun home activity uh, ask parents to match clothing items when they're doing the laundry or things that come in pairs like shoes and socks and mittens. Toddlers love that. Once you've done the object to object and they've gotten that pretty well, move on to object to picture. And so this is what I was going to tell you about. And I've talked about this in that little series that I did, book about shows. This is probably, or show about books and <laughs> about reading. Probably in shows 416, 417, if you need lots of ideas for how to use books with kids in therapy. If a kid doesn't like books and you're just uh, at a wall with that. But one of the things I did years and years ago is get a couple of uh, photograph books. So books with really clear, not cartoon pictures or hand-drawn or anything like that, you know, an artist picture, but photographs. And so then get another closely related uh, a toy, a real-life object that looks a lot like that picture, and then start some early little matching with that. And how I do that is I just uh, set out three or four of those little objects and then get your book and you'll point to the picture and say, you know, here's the car. Can you find a car? You find a car for me. And so do that kind do it that way. Great therapy activity. Uh, put it all together in a bag so that you can save it. You can use it for years and years and years and it'll, it'll be one of your keeper activities. Lots of parents come up with their own little kits like that so they are not continuously looking for objects to use uh, as they are trying to work on this at home. So that's another uh, great way to target that, matching objects to pictures. Uh, matching picture to picture is pretty easy <clears throat> because, like I said, you already have that with your puzzles or even with little memory games that you can get with those identical matching pictures um, and using a direct match of course is the easiest to do. Occasionally you'll find a child's puzzle that maybe the the top pieces or the pieces you insert are colored but the insets there that the child's supposed to match it to are black and white it was so funny for me as a young therapist and realizing, huh, that's why nobody can really do this puzzle without until they've had a lot of experiences with puzzles because it was harder. There was a black and white picture to match to the colored picture. So help parents understand and analyze their toys and analyze why a child might be having difficulty with uh, one set of materials versus another. Now matching by color, like we said, is what's achieved during this developmental period, but if you have a kid who can't match by color, 
uh, certainly back up and work on these other things first. That's one thing I hope that I always try to teach you when we are doing these kinds of courses is if a kid can't do this, these are all the, the your backup levels. So you've got to always back up to that easier, earlier level. All right, so matching by color. The reason that this import is important here early in this period is because by the end of this developmental period, remember we said by 36 months we want children identifying lots of uh, basic colors, those red, blue, white, yellow, orange, black, and I think, uh, I, I think I might have gotten them all green, maybe, I think there's seven. So until a kid can match colors, he can't name colors. So that's why this is so, so important. So be sure that you are uh, paying attention to this. And again, this is something that uh, as speech language pathologists, we're usually thinking we're gonna pass that off to the preschool teacher or to the DI or early interventionist who's still working with the child. But we need uh, strategies to address this too, in case we are the only uh, professional working with a family. So many children with developmental delays do need structured teaching in order to learn colors. Um, the, when I have to work on it with the kid, I, again, I like the down and dirty methods that I can just you know get it done really quick and really fast. So I like those little matching sets of, with bears and cups that you can get from the parent-teacher store or, or uh, Lakeshore or any of those other little companies. Um, Legos are another common toy that you can use that you can match by color, and I like to set it up like structured teaching would teach us to do. Uh, where I've got maybe a red Lego and a blue Lego and a green Lego and then our therapy activity is putting all the blue ones you know a child picks the the blue Lego out of a bag and he puts the blue one on the blue Lego and then he selects the red one on the on the red Lego that kind of thing uh, with colors be sure that you're telling showing and helping giving lots of verbal visual and those tactile cues don't let a kid make mistake after mistake Let's take a lesson from our ABA colleagues who almost overcue when a child is making mistakes so that we can prevent that. So if you have a child who is just randomly tossing all the, the blue one can go in yellow or in red, just making all kinds of mistakes, it's too hard. More than likely, you don't even need to be working at that level. You gotta back up and work at those easier, earlier levels because it's not supposed to be that hard. If a kid is really developmentally ready, you're not gonna have to spend months and months and months teaching the same thing. Usually when you're doing that, when the kid is really stuck, you've missed two or three of those other steps along the way. So that's why I wanted to uh, provide that continuum about that. One more point about teaching colors. You know, I, I gave you the continuum for matching. Let's do the same thing with colors. So when we're learning colors, they sort and match by colors first, then they identify the color receptively, meaning that you don't say, what color is this? And they say blue, you say, find the blue one, find the yellow one, find the red one. And then after that, then and only then, are they really ready or expected to name colors accurately? Uh, so until a child matches, he's not gonna learn colors receptively. Until he learns colors receptively, he's not gonna be able to use those color names expressively. So make sure you are not violating that continuum. All right, so that is it. That's our list of milestones for receptive language for 30 to 36 months. I gave tons of examples for teaching those skills in everyday routines and also in therapy sessions, but I wanna share another resource with you it's the toy list, the ultimate toy list for speech therapy that I've developed at my website, Teach Me to Talk. It's got tons of toys. 
lots of different opportunities so that you can add some variety to the things that you already routinely use to teach kids these skills between 30 and 36 months. There's some great toys on that list. So if you have some gaps and you need some new ideas, please take a look at that list and I hope you'll take advantage of those recommendations. Now my best resource uh, for teaching these skills is Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual. And the best part about this book is that it not only lists the milestones that we've reviewed in this entire 14-part podcast series from 12 months to 36 months, but you also get all of the strategies that we've talked about. And so many speech-language pathologists email me and say this is the one resource that they use every single day when they're planning therapy and certainly when they're writing um, their reports and, and, and writing uh, and sharing information with parents. So that's a wonderful resource. And I, you probably already have it uh, in your library if you're listening to my show. But if you don't have it, uh, I want to mention that book so that you can get that. All right, next, uh, the next show we do is show 459. And we're going to keep chugging along with this series. And we'll be looking at expressive language milestones by 36 months. And I bet you've already caught on to this. Expressive skills are always kind of the counterpart of what we've just reviewed in the receptive show. So we'll, it will be a great show for sure. And I hope that you'll have uh, lots of ideas to use with your little friends on your caseload. All right, if you are watching this show to get your continuing education credit, don't forget the link in the description below. Pop over there right now if you haven't already purchased the credit and get the credit for your show. If you're listening to this podcast while you drive, while you exercise, while you clean or whatever you do, you have already earned your credit. So don't leave that hour of CEU credit on the table. Get over to Teach Me to Talk and pay your fee and download your certificate so you can get credit for the course that you already took today. All right, that's it. I want to thank you again for joining me. If you are new to Teach Me to Talk, we want to be your main CE provider. So please check out the additional courses that we have in our library. I think this is our 78th or 79th course. So be sure that you are taking advantage of those opportunities too. All right, that's really it for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist. And thank you so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talk's podcast.